Welcome to Order Up, the restaurant operations podcast brought to you by Ops Analytica. The reality is, is that when a customer has a bad experience with our one of our locations or with our brand, very rarely is it a catastrophic fail on the company's part. It's not like they got punched in the face or their car caught on fire or they got foodborne illness. On the contrary, most of those mediocre experiences that they're having are just the team at the location did not deliver the experience or the product to the level of expectation, right? That's it. And what's even more frustrating is that so many of those fails um, that are creating those mediocre experiences have already been identified by the company. We already know that that's an issue. We've trained on it. We told you to look out for it. But the reality is, is that we are asking so much more from our employees today than at any other time in the past. We expect them to have such a grasp on all of these details, but we are not giving them the tools to be successful, right? And that's what we do at Ops Analytica. We are the platform that you give to your hourly employees so they know uh, what they have to do, when they have to do it, and so they don't miss anything. And then on the corporate side, you now have visibility into what's happening and you can hold them accountable to doing it. And you can get rid of those mediocre experiences and control what you can control. And Ops Analytica is a major key to that success. Check us out at opsanalytica.com. Good afternoon and welcome to another episode of the Order Up Show. It's your host, Tommy. I authored my intro sentence. I have to be complaining about how I say the same thing every time. I made a slight change. I hope you appreciate it. Listeners, I am super excited today because I want to welcome to the show, uh, Mr. Sanjeev Razdan. How are you doing there, Sanjeev? Tommy, I am super excited to be on your show. Thank you. And I'm doing very well and uh, staying out of trouble. Good, good. You know, in the pre-show, we were just talking about Omicron. So we might talk about that later on, too. Um, So, Sanjeev, the show is super easy. I ask the same questions to every guest. Uh I I always like my first question the most uh, because it talks about your career progression. And I think it's important for people to hear that as we get higher up in the industry, we all started off doing something at the bottom. And I think that's what's really great about our industry. So question number one for you, sir. Explain what you do today, but then take us through your career progression from that first job until now. I'll dive right in, Tommy. My job at the moment and my role at the moment is with a company called The Coffee Bean and Tea Leaf. Um, My role here is the president of the Americas and India business. We have over 225 cafes spread over this geography, uh, predominantly in the U.S., and my job's to lead the team, grow the business, and uh, take care of our guests. Nice. Uh, where I started is a very interesting um, uh, story, clearly, like for most of us. I grew up in India. I went to college to study physics. I hated it. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> as a reaction to that, I went and joined a hotel company uh, as a trainee. Uh, I joined them as a hotel trainee. It was a large conglomerate. They were the master franchisees for Sheraton in India. Yeah. And I you know, spent a two-year training program with them where you got uh, clean rooms, you know, uh, divin 
shrimp, clean, bus, all that kind of good stuff. But over a period of time, they essentially train you how to be uh, lead and manage in the hotel industry. So my first job after my training got concluded was the room service manager of a five-star hotel. And I spent the first five years of my career with that company. It's called ITC Hotels. Uh, It was in New Delhi as managing various restaurants in a five-star hotel. From there, the economy in India was opening up. Um, Multinationals were coming in. Pepsi-Cola was one of them. And Pepsi-Co was bringing in a bunch of their restaurant brands to India. One of them was Pizza Hut. So I landed up joining the Pizza Hut startup in India way before there were any Pizza Huts on the ground, clearly. I'd never seen one. I had no idea what Pizza Hut is. They showed me a video um, of Pizza Hut, which sounded like a lot of fun. It also came with a ticket to the United States to train here. So that led to what eventually became a 20-year career with Yum! Brands. So I'll take you through a little bit of that. My first job was a restaurant general manager with Pizza Hut in India. From there, I you know grew up the ladder, so to speak. I became a multi-unit. We used to call them uh, area managers at the time. Became a franchise business consultant and eventually was leading operations for that part of the world, uh, for the Indian subcontinent. At which point, I, my first major break came my way and the company offered me a role based out of Dallas, Texas, to come and head up operations for Pizza Hut International. And so uh, by this time, I'd met my wife through the company. We have two daughters. They were two and four. And so we moved from New Delhi to Dallas to take this role, where my job was to essentially find ways of helping Pizza Hut business around the world to reimagine and refresh their casual dining business and also find ways of profitably expanding the pizza delivery business. Sure. Three years in Dallas and then opportunity knocked again in the same company and Yum! Uh, brand said, hey, we've got this role for you in London, England. Mm. And so we picked up sticks again and moved to essentially take on a role as the regional director of operations for Pizza Hut uh, in UK. And my job was to run the 90-odd company-owned Pizza Hut delivery stores uh, spread across Greater London. That led to a very exciting phase of our lives. We lived in London for about eight years, loved it there. Nice. Um, the UK was a big market. So I grew in the in the UK business. I went from regional director of operations to uh, heading up franchise operations. So I became director of franchise ops. I became... Um, Business development director, so think of it as the chief development officer for that market. I did a role in concept development. And then by the time these seven years are over, eight years are over, they said, hey, we've got a role for you back in India. And so I went back to India as the president for Pizza Hut India at that time. So my kids are grown up now and we're kind of dragging them, kicking and screaming from London to New Delhi back again. 
we had a fun three-year stint in that role, um, in that uh, particular role. And then as they were growing, I think we were keen to bring them back to the U.S. or British education system. Sure. And I, I wanted to grow my career back in the U.S. So I at that 20-year point with Yum Brands, I took a role with Dine Brands as the Senior VP of Operations and COO for Applebee's based out of Kansas City. Yeah. So here we are from New Delhi, moving to Kansas City. We spent um, a few yeah. months there before... They're very similar places. <laughs> very similar. Very similar, Tommy. Uh, and then from there, within about six months of landing in Kansas City, the company decided to move its home office from Kansas City to Los Angeles. Sure. So we picked up sticks again, moved to L.A. with uh, Applebee's. I was with them for about three years. From there, I think uh, the brand was going through an interesting time, a lot of leadership transition, and I, I knew it was time for me to do something different. And I leapt into a very, very different brand called Sweet Green. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So for those that don't know, Sweet Green is a fast casual brand. Um, it's famous for selling salads and very tech forward. Started off on the East Coast. So I joined them as their COO as they were ramping up their growth. Uh, spent about two and a half years with Sweet Green before uh, joining the Coffee Bean and Tea Leaf as their president uh, for this business. So that's the long and short of my story. So I, what I like about your story is that it's got, I look at, and this is like a totally odd thing to say, but I feel like Dallas in the summer is probably as hot as New Delhi. So I feel <laughs> like that wasn't a horrible transition. I'm sure London in the summer is like basically being on the North Pole. And then like, and then you ended up in KC, which is the worst. Um, but I think we probably know the same guy. Have you ever met Merck Maddock? Of course, Merck Maddock. I worked with him. I had the pleasure of working with him both in London and, and then uh, in Dallas. Right? Yeah, there yeah. you go. Merck's been on the show. And, oh, uh, I didn't know that. How, yeah, how? and he's now at 7-Eleven. That's right. Yeah, it's a small world. Yep, And just other connections that we have. Uh, what's it called? There's a great coffee bean and tea leaf right on the uh, um, right at the Grove, right on the farmers market side. Or there was. When there I was. still is. Uh, is that one of your highest volume stores? It does very well for us. Yeah, we yeah. Um, we're very proud of that one. Yeah, it's beautiful. And like you know, I, I drink many a coffee from that location when I work at the Grove. So, okay, really cool, uh, really cool background. Once again, like I said. Every you started off cleaning rooms in a two-year training program. Um, my dad would love this because he was a mathematician <laughs> and he worked at the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab. But he, but he actually <laughs> wow. But uh, yeah. Anywho, cool. So uh, I don't have any more questions. But it's funny that we both know Merck. That's great. Um, and and also we did a pilot for we were piloting in Sweetgreen for a while. I remember that. Yeah, we. Um, I think I may have been there in Sweet Green around the same time that we were piloting. Um, yeah, but then you guys made the worst mistake of your lives and didn't choose us. Which I'm surprised you're still in business, but whatever. I, I know that it was. <laughs> <laughs> of course, it's probably uh, reflecting in the share price now. Oh, is it high? I I know they IPO'd right. Yeah, they did. Yeah, they've done. I think they've done well for themselves. 
Yeah, I feel like this. So here's my take on that salad gig, right? Uh-huh. Uh, it's incredibly worrisome to me because of the amount of uh, ingredients that you have that aren't cooked. And, it, and you know, people want this organic thing, but mm-hmm. you really need to irradiate that stuff or you're good. You know, you just, it's very terrifying to me, the yeah. whole salad. Business. It, it, I can see why you're terrified, Dommy. It, it makes complete sense. I think part of the magic of uh, Sweet Green is the fact that they've managed to build processes, uh, cooking procedures to obviously try and keep it uh, food safe, right? And I think they do a remarkably good job of that. But we all know, having uh, followed the Chipotle incident, that you're only as good as uh, you are uh, you know, till till the last day that you're not, where mistakes yeah. happen, and so I think there's there's a phrase that I use there called proactive paranoia, which yeah. is to cr- create a culture where you wake up every morning and you anticipate that something may go horribly wrong when it comes to food safety, and you do everything you possibly can to prevent those kinds of things. You know, it, yeah, I totally agree. You know, it's, it's so. <laughs> No, it's so vexing to me, the restaurant industry, right? Like, and I've been in this thing my whole life. I started at 14 making cheesesteaks, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, no, everybody cares about food safety, but eh, okay. But until you have a bad day, and then when you have that bad day, sometimes that bad day can be catastrophic, you know? Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's, it's such a hard balance to get people to take it seriously. And, you know, Traditionally, that the restaurant industry, because of the fact that we have so many locations out there, right? And we have so many people touching these products and, you know, it's such a, you know, in-demand type of scenario. Um, we, and because we didn't have technology like we do today, you mm-hmm. know, the whole industry came up sort of backing into things, right? So like our big food safety push has been on uh, the commissary and the supply chain. Right. right. Because it's easier to control, you know, one lettuce supplier than it is to control, you know, a thousand salad restaurants. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, it's of course, scalable. it's not as scalable, obviously. Right. So it's not, Jordan, uh, Tommy. But as you know, I mean, t- tools like Ops Analytica are available today, but also technology has grown so much, right? In terms of tracking cooler temperatures or um, equipment that needs to say, stay hot or, if one can leverage tools and systems now, it certainly makes it easier. It doesn't make it easy, yeah. though. No, absolutely. You know what they have? I kind of remember the name of it. We have buddies here in Denver that had a you know, restaurant supply company, and they had a produce washing station that they put on aircraft carriers. So, you know, the Navy's zipping around the world. They're yeah. produce in Somalia. They're picking it up all over the place. And so they have this washing system that is a chemical wash, but it was like safe chemical, whatever, but they could wash all their produce that they're picking up around the world. And so they could serve it on the ship. Right. So I thought that was really interesting. That's pretty cool. You want to make sure everyone's a ship safe. Exactly. Exactly. Cause you get, you know, you get an E. coli outbreak on an aircraft carrier. You're not launching planes. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> and also it's like that cruise ship that like broke down remember it was the big thing like five years ago when the toilets were ever flowing and like you of know they course. Had, like, it was noro um, oh yeah Hor- horror right? stories oh god okay yeah um cool let's go to question number two 
what is the big project or initiative that you're working on right now? Yeah, we um, are working on a few big things, but I'll share with you um, probably one of the most exciting things that we're doing, which is really ramping up store development in the US. Coffee Bean for a few years now has been in um, status quo mode. And sure. we're, we've had a fabulous uh, 2021. Um, our stores have done incredibly well, particularly our drive-through uh, locations have, have really exceeded expectations. Off-premise and digital, like for many others, has done extremely well. So on the back of that, we're in the midst of a growth spurt where we are applying um, science and logic to selectively start growing our stores uh, beyond the geography, geography that we've traditionally been in. So a lot of our effort is essentially at the moment around just growing store count. But within that, there's two very interesting things that we're piloting. One is a asset type for coffee bean, that is a drive-through only asset. Okay, I yeah. like it. Yeah, which which we're very excited about. But equally, we're also piloting a walk-up only asset where small footprint, all digital, grab and go, right? So essentially creating asset types that are how consumers are using the brand today more and more. So very excited about that. My, one of my... Uh... My mentors, and I used to work for him at Quiznos, uh, his name's Brian Ferris, and uh, he's a restaurant guy, but he had been at um, uh, Boston Market. And, you know, you think about a Boston Market, right? And it's this big restaurant with a buffet line, you know, and they're serving out of stuff. The original Boston Market in Boston was a walk-up. It was like a wind, it was like a hole in a wall, you know, and they would just hand chickens out to like people on their way out of town to go home and eat dinner, you know? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, who would think, right, in terms of how Boston Market evolved, but that's how it started. I didn't know that. Yeah. And so it's like, so that walk up is actually like, because here's my, my biggest like beef with the restaurant industry is like everybody is, makes everything too big, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah. Like the Boston Market's a perfect example. It's like a McDonald's yeah. footprint, you know what I mean? And it's like, but, you know, whatever, like, I love this concept of, can I get, like, it's almost like a, a, it's the same sort of concept that they're doing now with these cloud kitchens, right? How can I yeah. get a, how can I kick out seven brands worth of food in a 500 square foot space where the guy literally just parks himself between the make line and the grill and just goes, it's the same thing. Can I get, like, I would kill to get a 500 foot coffee bean license. And just okay. in the right, obviously, it has to have walk-up traffic, period. No of course. Part, but And just crank money out, I think, and not be stuck paying 1,100 square foot in rent when I only need 500 square foot. Go drink the, your coffee on a bench. You know what I mean? Or the, take it back to work. Like, the, that's exactly right. And I think that it's quite interesting, um, as you were narrating the uh, Boston market story, right? There was a time where everybody was building these very large footprint big boxes, right? You think yeah. about the Chili's and Applebee's of the world and the and the big casual dining players, right? Olive Gardens, etc. Sure. Uh, and and now it's completely come back a full circle. It's all about, uh, you know, I call it miniaturization, but it's not, you know, yeah. it's about small footprint 
efficient, digitally enabled, because yeah. people want to have their food or beverage on the go, right? And convenience is trumping a lot of other factors. Um, surprisingly or not surprisingly, the coffee business, of course, including coffee bean, we do very well out of some of our smaller footprint locations, sure. particularly even our kiosks, right? At the airports, for example, you think about it. We can crank out coffee um, pretty efficiently uh, where people need it the most. Yeah. Well, you have, a. I think you're in terminal B or C in DIA too. Uh, I think so. Yes, that's right. We're, we are in several airports uh, across the country. And in fact, part of the reason why people get to know us is because they see us and you remember us from seeing us at one of the big airports. We've certainly got a big presence at LAX as well. Yeah. That airports, I mean, airports, if you can get into them, you have to have the right partner, right? Because a lot of the airports need Correct. like certain, they need a partner that's local uh, and a lot of times, or as a, a large minority ownership share, they tend to do that a lot, it seems. But I mean, what a great, uh, what a great way to build the brand because you get seen by so many people and they're high volume stores. You know what I mean? They do crazy numbers. I mean, because I was getting coffee bean uh, this summer at DIA and the line was like 40 deep, you know, 7 a.m. Them and the yep. McDonald's and the Starbucks, they all are like, and your coffee beans really close to the Starbucks, but it doesn't yeah. affect this cannibalization at all. Yeah, these locations, particularly um, colleges, uh, airports, transport hubs, these do incredibly well for us, but also our competitive set, right? It's just the kind of place where you've got a captive audience and people are looking for a quick bite to eat or a you know their favorite cup of caffeine yeah absolutely well that's really exciting I, the drive-through only totally get yeah i i just i love that i i'm all for miniaturization because everything gets easier right and one of the so one of the jobs i had uh mm -hmm. after i got my grad degree is i my first job at like corporate for a restaurant chain was at quiznos right and I did and I always tell people this, but like I had the like I did the fran I ran the franchise assistance program at Quiznos in 2008 during the downturn, right as they had peaked 5,000 locations and were starting to lose locations. So like you know I was in the perfect storm of the economy was going to hell, uh, Quiznos was going to hell, and it, you know, <laughs> it was just like and I'm the guy you call and you know every call I got was like can I have money to pay my rent and I'm like no. And then uh, <laughs> it was bad, but uh, what's it called? One of the things that killed Quiznos, right? People don't know, is that we did so. We were racing Subway at location mm -hmm. counts all through the early two thousands. Mm -hmm. Subway, from what I've heard, I never worked there, but from what I've heard from people, they oh, geez, I heard this thing turn off. Um, uh, what happened to Subway was was that Subway would back the rents for the vendor, for the stores. Got so it. if you went out of business, Subway would still pay the landlord some the months so they could resell the store to get somebody new in, right? Right. So because of that, they were able to, to negotiate fav more favorable rents than a Quiznos could because they had the corporate backing that, hey, you're not going to not go without rent. Got you it. Know, we'll just keep it shuttered and we'll get a new guy in there. Mm-hmm. Quiznos also grew during the real estate bubble. 
So we were adding thousands of like hundreds, almost a thousand locations a year for periods of time in the early 2000s. But we were paying four or five or six, seven thousand dollars a month rent because we were in the real estate bubble and they could command it. And I just that was one of the largest factors, not the only factor, but one of the largest factors that led to the Quizmos demise was that that owners could not could not sell enough subs to cover their fixed costs. There are variable cost issues in there too with that American food distributor thing that where they they were over paying for food. Right. But, you know, food cost is variable. You have a six thousand dollar, eleven hundred square foot strip center rent. You got to make that nut, or you're you're out of business. You know what I mean? And it's such a big deal. No, that's exactly right. I think one of the things that you can't undo, obviously, in the restaurant business is the asset that you commit to, right? Once you've sunk your cost of construction and rent and you've taken a certain size footprint, right? You're stuck with that. You can change a lot of other things. You can, you know, evolve your menu, change your pricing, do other things, but you're stuck with the store you have. Yep. And so I've certainly always found that trying to right size that store size and making sure that you minimize your capital investment up front really sets you up for success. So even with our drive throughs, I think what we what we're thinking is to restrict uh, the size and upfront investment uh, to as little as we need to do to ensure that we can offer a great experience, but also consumers are using us through the drive-thru. So we expect to capture almost all the sales in any case, right? So yeah. that's the sort of um, the right balance to strike. But that's that's fascinating, the, the Quiznos story, because I always thought about, you know, at that time where Quiznos and Subways were going head to head and there was a lot happening, you know, Quiznos um, point of differentiation, at least to me from the outside, seemed like the whole toasted sub, yeah. which Subway was not um, famous for. Uh, it's it, it's been interesting to see how that story has played out. Well, I'll give you some insight on that because it's really interesting, actually. So at the time, Quiznos had Coke and Subway had Pepsi as their soda provider. But Subway was growing much faster than Quiznos was. And so Coke wanted uh, Coke wanted to be with Subway more than they wanted to be with Quiznos. Um, maybe it could have been unit volumes. I mean, actually, Quiznos was always had higher unit volumes all the way up into the mid 2000s, and then Subway flip flopped them with the healthy menu. So, anyways, Coke really wanted Subway's business, so they went in and they said, "Look, you kick out Pepsi and bring us in, and we'll subsidize toasters for you." So Coke kind of like like double kicked Quiznos to the curb because they took away their competitive differentiation by helping them fund those those toasters and they like lost their soda provider right so yeah then, so then they flip-flopped but at that time then Subway got all their toasted subs so you know then our differentiation was recipe-based sub versus you build it yourself because we have these chefs Chef Jimmy and all these guys that were coming up with these delicious subs but you know, it, but that was the flip flop, and it, that really kicked Quiznos in the butt. That's what I heard, at least. You know, I well, but well, that's a cool story. I, you know, that's uh, that's yeah. insightful. Yeah. You know, it's interesting too about like 
like just sort of like sticking to this like delivering the food like, like you know obviously the pandemic has pushed us forward right where we've we've changed how we dine and eat and coffees i mean starbucks is obviously driven a lot of this too. I mean, you don't, you can barely find a store in the suburbs of Starbucks that doesn't have a drive-through, you know? Um, but I, I do love that the drive-through coffee concept is just the best because, you know, especially if you can keep the line moving, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. The biggest problem with drive-through only business is really line time perception. Cause we've all been there. We're thinking of course. I 10 minutes. I can do this if it's going to be 10 minutes. If it's 12, I'm late. You know what I mean? And so just keeping that, anything you can do to have the double line or both sides or something, right? Where you can have the two-sided drive-through to keep that line moving as fast as possible so that you can capture, so you just don't lose sales. It's so easy for people just to go out of line, too long and keep going, you know? You know, the whole idea that was driving the coffee business and certainly the wave of, Starbucks for gosh, couple of decades was this whole notion of the third place. Yeah. Right? And I think that whole thing is certainly got replaced by convenience, right? The third place has became has essentially become a spot on your mobile device. Um, and people yeah. just will not, you know, it they want the experience to be frictionless, how you order, uh, how quickly you can order, but also the perception of speed and the real speed, right? To your point. You yeah. drive up there a drive-through. If there's too many lines in the, uh, too many cars in the line, you're just not interested in waiting or joining that line. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, you're right. The third place, and it's interesting because we have Starbucks right by my house, and that one has a giant line. I mean, it wraps the building, and, it, and it's a dual building. It's a big Starbucks and a donut shop. It's pretty big too. So, and it will wrap the whole building. But like I, it's close to a high school, so people are still having meetings in there. But it's not like it was like in the '90s and 2000s when, like, when I lived in Denver, for instance. And you know, you would go to a coffee shop and you would just do your like side hustle. You know, mm -hmm. I was a comic for a lot of years, so I'd be in there writing comedy or just hanging out. You know, like it, it, I don't know that it's as much that anymore. I think they're. That business has definitely transformed from, hey, let's go meet at a Starbucks to, hey, let's just go get coffee, you know, and I don't know, sit somewhere else maybe, or or let's just talk on the phone or text and not even have a human interaction. Ooh, I wonder if that has to do with smartphone technology. <laughs> yeah, it's it's certainly we're we're living our lives differently for sure. Yeah, there's there's no doubt about it. Well. Because I that was such a cool thing back in the day, like before I had kids. Uh, everything was much more fun before I had kids, because I was able to go do stuff for myself. But like you know, instead of but and I'm being like you know, facetious, but at the same time true, you know. But we don't interact the same way. Like we used to interact by going out and having a cup of coffee and maybe a bagel or a breakfast burrito at a place, and we might just coexist. We might both be on our laptops doing our thing. But we'd be at the same table and we could just chat for a while. But now, and I'm I'm down, I'm dying to know, we got to figure this out, man. Is did you know texting and WhatsApp and social media replace that need? So therefore the business shifted to just get people coffee and they can go home and interact online. Yeah, and you know, obviously it's it's hard to tell, right? But you you'd have to think that that has led 
to some of these shift in behaviors, but also in the last two years, I think the pandemic's not helped either, right? They, the people trying to, you know, sit outdoors, stay safe, all of that kind of stuff, I know certainly has impacted um, a lot of the restaurant businesses, right? But the interesting thing is that on the one hand, there are certain kinds of food and beverages that people are wanting to have more and more on the go, whether I have it at my desk or back at home or wherever, but also the need for that social interaction, that that pent up um, feeling still remains. And I recall like when that Delta variant had hit us and, you know, there were lockdowns in various parts of the country and they opened up, there was like this tremendous uh, rush to get to your local neighborhood cafe, restaurant, whatever it was, right? And just go and have what was considered a normal experience otherwise. So that yeah. says that, you know, that human need still remains. People are just yeah. meeting that in different ways. Yeah. Let me ask you this, because we haven't chatted about this yet. Delivery. Are you guys delivering coffee? Is it working? Is it hard? Do people like it? Is it a thing? I, I don't know anything about it. Yeah. Delivery of coffee is working and growing at the moment. It's an interesting phenomenon. I think, first of all, we're very pleased, clearly, being in the business that people are drinking coffee and tea at home or wherever it is that they are um, having it delivered. Um, there's a couple of factors there. One is what we're finding, certainly in our business, is that as people are getting their favorite beverage delivered home, they're also looking for a bite to eat or snack. Nice. So they're wrapping their order up with a pastry or a sandwich or a wrap of some description. Um, so it's not just a beverage need occasion. It feels to to us that it's also a snack, beverage, you know, I'll get, get grab a coffee and have a bite to eat occasion, which is interesting. It might also have to do with making sure that if I'm ordering and paying the commissions and fees that are involved in delivery, that you know I'm getting value for money in some respects, right? Sure. So I think that's one. The other thing that's happened uh, is, and this is happening across our specialty coffee industry in the U.S. and certainly with the coffee bean, that um, anywhere between seventy to seventy-five percent of beverages consumed now, including coffee and tea, are cold beverages, mm. and so inherently they deliver so much better right than trying to make sure that your hot coffee is delivered hot which is a little bit more challenging than a cup full of cold beverage getting delivered still reasonably cold so i think that's helping that con consumer behavior has shifted toward towards consuming tea and coffee cold interesting yeah which is pretty cool yeah, for sure. I was just thinking like, you know how like at the beginning, you know, the, the big thing was on the door, you guys are eating your fries. Like that was the whole like fear or worry. Mm -hmm. type thing. I was just thinking from, as you were speaking too, like, you know, from a, a security, like, so like, do you put like a big, do you have some sort of like, um, you know, Boba, how they have that, like, yeah. you go by the Boba, they put that like, yeah. that like tight piece of like, like plastic. It's not like a lid. It's like, right. The flexible lid. Do you do yeah. something like that to like hold the cap on, but also to protect the hole and also to make sure that, that, you know, it's almost tamper resistant. Do you have stuff like that for beverages or no? We, um, we basically seal our bag. We send our beverages and food in a brown bag, um, a branded Got brown it. bag. And then we seal the bag so that it's 
reasonably tamper-proof, right? Nice. There you go. Perfect. So at least it's not the, you know, if someone's trying to mess about with your bag, it'll be evident that someone's messed about with it. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. Well, there we go. You've already uh, yep. solved it. Uh, <laughs> uh, let's get to question number three. Yep. What let's is the one thing in the industry or your business that's keeping you up at night? The flight of talent out of the restaurant industry is undoubtedly probably one of the biggest challenges that the whole industry is facing at the moment. I was attending a conference not that long ago, and somebody who seems to know these things was sharing a statistic that at the peak of this uh, crisis, we were losing almost a million people out of uh, the restaurant industry in the US uh, by way of our workforce. So that is presenting all sorts of staffing challenges for the restaurant industry and it certainly um, is something that i think a lot about how to you know get around that and get ahead of it you know what is insane is that i literally just said that yesterday <laughs> like because you know with our platform like operations management software like that's mm -hmm. not something that the industry is typically had and i'll be honest with you like if we're just putting it out there, there's a lot of, like I would call dinosaur operators out there that mm -hmm. are very afraid of that because they have been able to kind of hide in the lack of data and visibility. Right. And, you know, if they're very worried that if a big light gets shined on things that people are going to be very concerned about how things are operating. Right. Mm -hmm. but one of the problems is, and I've seen some crazy stats on this too, but like, obviously, you know, we've had, we've had a, a labor issue, not just, because of the pandemic, but we've had it for years. But right. um, now what's happened, you know, traditionally in our industry, what we've relied on is investing vast sums of time, energy, and money into training to get people to memorize what they're supposed to do. And then we backfill it with job aids that nobody uses mm -hmm. and, and, and systems that aren't really systems. I call them, they're not really systems. If you don't have accountability and data, it's not a system. It's a suggestion, right? Right. So they backfill with that. And that's what we've always done. The prop, But what we had in the past, what kind of made that work better, was we usually had a couple of tenured people around that could kind of go, oh, no, do it like this. Yeah. Oh, you forgot that. But we've lost those tenured people recently. And so now... You know, there are restaurants and I don't, you know, there are definitely restaurants out there where the, the senior guy, the head guy has been there four months and has no clue, you know, and isn't a professional restaurant guy. He just keeps showing up. You know what I mean? And, yeah. then, and he's the guy that just needs this job really bad or it just meets his schedule or whatever. And like, so he's there, but he's not a professional restaurateur. He's doing the best they can. And, and so, but that is a very scary thing. And, and, I do believe that we're on the cusp of, because we see more and more interest every year in our platform or just in platforms like ours, we're seeing more and more of people are going away from memorization because the tenure of an employee is so short in some businesses that mm -hmm. you can afford an extra day or two of training to have them memorize stuff. And hopefully we're moving more to systems and the system being that there's training, but there's accountability and data and process built into it, not just 
something slapped on a wall, but actually someone's managing to it, right? Because the system can buoy memorization, right? I don't have to teach you how to do everything. I just need right. to teach you how to use the system, right? And through repetition, you will learn the memorization part. Like if I make 700 lattes in a week, I'll have lattes down by the end of the week. You know what I mean? Yep. So absolutely. Um, but you know, we are the second largest employer as an industry in the US. I know. It, it's, I don't think, you know, sometimes that people don't realize that. <laughs> with the kind of crisis we're facing, it, it is crazy. And you're right. I think this is where we've got to get better and elevate our game, particularly around those um, folks who haven't changed the way that they do things around simplifying training, making it more um, intuitive, uh, making it such that the folks that are coming to work for us now can consume it, to your point. you know, They're used to consuming information very differently um, through their mobile devices in bite-sized chunks. Uh, and w the, the industry doesn't have the time to invest, you know, massive lengths of time training people. And neither do the folks who are coming to work for us have the time or attention span to sit there and be trained for long, copious amounts of time. So well, certainly in time for change. Absolutely. And also, too, and I, I, this is the broken record part of the podcast, but this has been on my mind a lot lately. We as an industry have done a horrible job of making ourselves be cool you know like when you talk about the restaurant industry like the connotation people that has oh you're gonna be a fry cook at mcdonald's oh you're a fry cook you know what i mean like like oh no you're working in a restaurant like we are a cool industry and we have to do a better job and as an industry of letting people know this is a career path you know look you're the president like you're the president of the company you didn't like physics, but now you're the, you know what I mean? Like it's all over the yeah. world. You've had interesting jobs. Like, you know, it's, this is a cool business and it's one of the few businesses, by the way, and I've said this a billion times too, where you don't have to have a college degree to make a lot of money. Because if you're a great people manager and you understand some basic numbers, you can be a really effective restaurant manager and you can make some pretty good cash. So I just, I, I guess I say this every podcast, not because I'm trying to beat a dead horse into the ground for the listeners, but because I'm trying to like motivate us all to start thinking like, how do we teach people that this is a career, right? That it's a, and it can be a great career. I mean, you've lived all over the world. It, it, it is a great career. It's certainly been a fabulous career for me and continues to be. And and to so many, many others, there's not many industries where you can join the industry with uh, not a ton of college degrees required and work your way up by, you know, just your talent, working hard, great work ethic, and just continue to want to learn more. Yeah. And look at the challenges that you faced in the last three years. The technology adoption in the restaurant industry, which was woefully behind, you know, for a yeah. long time, like it literally sped up overnight. Like, and so running a restaurant isn't about like, you know, running a restaurant isn't about just like serving food. Like that's one part of it, but really restaurants are becoming tech companies, just like everything else. Like we are mm -hmm. now tech companies that deliver food. And one of the things that's most interesting about restaurants and why I think restaurant managers and restaurant leaders are so well equipped is because 
we have all the same challenges that other multi-location businesses have, right? Delivering products and services on site in a lot of locations, but we have one thing that makes us harder than everybody else, and that's perishability. And so yep. you have a product that's that's going bad, that you have to move. And so just you know, inventory and food safety and all those things make this even so much more challenging and interesting than just shirts. You know, there's no perishability on shirts other than they go out of style, right? But you're not like, oh my God, the shirts are going bad. Oh no, have a flash sale. We're running a special on shirts, you know? <laughs> anyway. Um, I, I can tell you're passionate about this. <laughs> oh man. Yeah, <laughs> sorry. Uh, we'll go to number four. Uh, what is the one thing you thought our industry would be doing right now that it isn't? Yeah, I think it's picking up on the theme that we're talking about here, Tommy. I think we have to mentor our people more uh, purposefully yeah. and invest in them instead of just throwing them into the deep end of the pool, yeah. which often the industry um, lands up doing, right? With all these people coming in to start their careers, and it's left to them to just sort of figure it out. Sure. And I think my big thing is I'd love to see, particularly those that have um, gotten a lot from the industry and have achieved, uh, you know, roles of seniority, is to how, what, how, how do we get more organized to pay it forward by providing mentoring, by pr providing structured leadership development um, back to those who need it the most? There's two interesting facts about our industry in the US. 50% uh, of our hourly team members in the restaurant industry are people of color. Hmm. And as you think about the progression of from getting from an hourly team member to a supervisor to some kind of a shift manager or, or a general manager of a restaurant, that thins very, very quickly, right? 50% for people of color is a disproportionate representation uh, from a population perspective, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but but they just don't make it beyond that. Similarly, 52% of uh, our hourly team members identify as females. Mm. And yet, barely a third of them make it to supervisory roles, never mind getting to um, management roles. So I think there's a lot um, that rests upon the industry to do for uh, folks that are underserved, underrepresented, but find the industry to be a very warm and welcoming home for them. One of the things uh, that I'm very passionate about is uh, mentoring and providing leadership development for these, uh, the folks who can't access it wherever they work. And we started, or I started a nonprofit nice. uh, going back about two years ago when the pandemic was really kicking in called Gleam Network. And Gleam stands for Global Leadership Enhancement and Mentorship Network. It's a nonprofit uh, that folks like me who were passionate about giving, paying it forward uh, got together. And we run a mentorship program. It's a six-month program. It's a one-hour-a-month commitment. And we ch charge a very, very nominal fee, uh, which literally covers our admin costs because all the folks who work for us are volunteers. We have no employees. The people who mentor for us are industry leaders who just want to pay it forward. 
Um, so those are the kinds of things that I think the industry needs to do. And if any of your listeners are interested to pay it forward and sign up as a mentor or want to benefit and join us as a mentee, I'd encourage them to go to our website. It's gleamnetwork.net and sign up for uh, however they choose to, uh, to, to pay it forward. But I really feel very passionately that we've got tremendous talent and we've got to take ownership of making sure we're investing in these people who come to work for us. Absolutely, because you want if you know when you have great leadership and you're developing people, your a lot of your turnover problems start to go away. You know what I mean? Like it, it's, it's exciting. Ex- oh, God, sorry. Yeah, no, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but it's just because I'm getting excited hearing you say that, which is exactly right. People will stay if they feel like someone's investing in them and taking care of them and valuing them, right? And people leave when you don't. Yeah, you know, I've been saying this a lot lately, like, you know, everyone's complaining about the, the, the labor shortage and I get applications are down and all this is down, but like, you know, the Chick-fil-A by my house has got like 20 teenagers out front taking orders all day long. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so some people would say like, we go, well, they're Chick-fil-A. So of course they have a great team and they, they're very rich and they you know, they make a lot of money. And then you go, well, is it because they're Chick-fil-A that they do that? Or is it because they're a great run business that they make a lot of money and then they're able to do that? You know, you can go, it's a circular reasoning, but you know, like, it's just, I, there are businesses out there that have all the employees they need right now. And they're very happy and they don't really have these same labor issues. And there are people, you know, that have one guy who's like literally taking orders and making all the food in their place. And you're just like, uh, what's going on here? <laughs> I know we both have a hard stop in like a couple of minutes. Uh-huh. So Want to move us quickly. Uh, so um, the next question is, and you can just answer it very quickly, is what is the one attribute of a great hospitality company like it'd be one thing you got to boil it down to one it can't be yeah. guest obsession customer obsession whatever you want to call it mm-hmm. a great hospitality company just has to keep listening and responding to the voice of their customer and i i i have not known one great hospitality company that's not been founded on that core belief perfect so the, the the predominant answer, and I think this falls into it, but I'm not going to put words in your mouth, is culture. Mm-hmm. And it is service culture is basically yeah. what it's been. I yeah. kick in numbers culture too, because yeah. like, you know, I've worked at restaurants where like, you know, they managed, like they treated it like a business and not mm-hmm. a thing and, and yeah. it's more successful. Um, okay, last question. War story time. I want a cringeworthy war story. You don't have to tell what brand it was. Uh, it's just one of those things that you got through and you can't believe you got through or, oh my gosh, I can't believe that happened. That's what <laughs> I'm looking for. Yeah, of course. I'll take you back to part of the narrative where we started the conversation about my career. So um, this is in the city of uh, Bangalore. It's the Silicon Valley of India. And this is where we're opening our first ever Pizza Hut in India. Right. It's in the press. You can't believe how big deal, uh, how much of a big deal this is. It's in the press. We're being written about TV stations are sort of uh, filming us. And this whole startup team has been preparing like Olympic athletes for this opening day. 
there's about six of us who were sent from India to the United States to train, and we all think we're the bee's knees now and ready, ready to go. So the doors open, there's lines out of the door of customers wanting to have their first taste of Pizza Hut, pan pizza. And they're, they're coming in and it's like a tsunami. We've got so many people who <laughs> walked in and all this training is just starting to melt away. And <laughs> I, I'm trying to run the shift here. And the guy on the make line or the team on the make line, right? They're just, the printer's not stopping. These are day, in the days before we had kitchen display systems. The printer's just going like crazy. Yeah. And there's so many tickets, we've lost sight of it. Eventually, we, it got to the point where, never mind being able to give customers what pizza they ordered, we were down to, did you order pizza with meat on it or without meat on it? And like, here you go. This is what you're going to get today. So, <laughs> I mean... It was crazy, um, especially after all the training. It was the most embarrassing day uh, from <laughs> oh. for the whole team. But it was a lot of fun. And now when we look back at it, it's a good laugh. Um, but there were lessons learned, shall we say. Oh, yeah. You know, and it's so funny. It's like they talk about in war. After the first shots fired, the battle plan goes right out the window, right? <laughs> it's like. Like I opened a, series, a bunch of PF Changs over the years, and like I was a waiter at one of them, and I remember the first day we opened, we were at this mall, you know, and it was like a two-hour wait, and yeah, and then they didn't have enough people, so our sections got bigger, and like, you know, it was just ridiculous. It's similar. It was a similar situation. It wasn't as bad as that. That's hilarious. Meet or no meat. Okay, here's it. You can be giving out like uh, Canadian pizza, Hawaiian pizzas. Oh, that's horrible. That Exactly. <laughs> As a you, quick side note, yeah. Iceland, they do Hawaiian pizza. They do pineapple and pepperoni. Yeah. Anyway, oh. That's their big pizza in Iceland. Well, whatever it takes. Yeah, man. Well, Sanjeev, this has been an amazing conversation. I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule. Uh, I hope to see more coffee beans in Denver because I love you guys. And uh, I just want to say thank you. And I will post not only links to your website at Coffee Bean up there, but I will also post the Gleam Network links as well um, up on the podcast notes. And I think I'm going to sign up as a mentor or a mentee. I don't know. It depends. <laughs> Tommy, that would be fantastic. I much appreciate that. Really enjoyed uh, this conversation. Thank you for having me. Oh, you're so welcome, sir. And good luck to you guys in 2022. All right. Bye-bye now. Bye.